Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody. We've wrapped up our What's Happening the last three Wednesday nights, and we are glad that you're here. Looking forward to study of 1 Peter. We'll start that tonight, in-depth study verse by verse that will take us for a number of weeks all the way through uh, 105 verses of Second Peter, rather 1 Peter. And tonight we'll look at the background, the setting of it, and we'll start off with chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So take your Bibles and turn to chapter 1 of 1 Peter, and we'll get started. Let's pray together tonight. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study your word as a congregation, Lord, to, uh, to just dive in verse by verse at your, at your holy inspired word. And I pray that you'd speak to us through the Holy Spirit every single Wednesday night that we're here, those joining us online. God, the same that you'd speak to their hearts and teach us what you want us to know from this powerful book. God, help us to live out our faith in the culture in which we find ourselves. And God, just help us to be a witness for Jesus uh, in the midst of it all. God, thank you again for your love for us that's demonstrated perfectly through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, first of all, letter A on your outline, the challenge of our day. We will begin there. The last three Wednesday nights, we've been looking, of course, a series entitled What's Happening, and we've had a, a good crowd here uh, for those and had Katie Fruget here with Artificial Intelligence and Katie McCoy with Gender Identity and then Shane Pruitt last Wednesday uh, looking at Gen Z and characteristics that they have. And so looking at what's going on in our culture, and it's perfect, I think, to follow it up with a study of First Peter entitled Culture Shock, because we are called to live out our Christian faith in the midst of the, the culture in which we live that doesn't understand our faith, that doesn't believe our faith, that sometimes gets antagonistic and angry because we believe what we believe. We're called names, we're canceled, we're... A lot of things happen because people are angry at what we believe and but we stand by what we believe. But that's, that's really nothing new. Because back in 1 Peter, in, in, in the day there in Asia Minor, Peter wrote this letter to a group of people who were living out their faith in the midst of a culture that was antagonistic against it. Uh, they harassed them, they persecuted them. Uh, and they would do a lot of things to them because they didn't understand the Christian faith. They didn't believe the Christian faith. And those that did believe it, uh, they, uh, they, they persecuted them for it. So it's very much similar to our day. So Peter gives us 105 verses on advice on how to live out your faith in a culture that's antagonistic to your faith. So it really fits perfectly what we're gonna, where, where we are and where we're living. So 1 Peter really does apply to believers, I think, today in a profound way. So we're going to be looking at the coming weeks. What does Peter tell us about, as far as advice goes about how we should live out our faith in Jesus? So the challenge of our day, we have a lot of challenges today as Christians. First of all, we're living in a non-Christian culture. A non-church culture, fewer and fewer people are identifying as Christian in our culture. Fewer and fewer people are attending church in our culture. Church attendance is down. We're living in a post-truth age. That's now the characteristic of this age. It's called post-truth, which means we've moved beyond the, 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 the day in which truth was absolute. It's no longer absolute. Truth is relative. It's your truth or it's my truth but it's not absolute. There's not one standard out there by which we are to gauge our lives. 
And so that's just not our culture. It is a post-truth age in which we live. The authority has changed in our culture. Who says so? Uh, if you say, well, that's not right. Homosexuality is wrong or this is wrong. Well, who says so? You say, well, the Bible says so. So what? The Bible is no longer seen as authoritative in our culture. It's not valued. The Scripture is not valued by society. So therefore, we just say, well, the Bible teaches that. So what in their minds? I don't believe the Bible, the authority that it has. So we're living in a day in which the authority has changed. Used to, you say, well, the Bible says this. And most people would agree with that or most people would, would listen to that. Not so anymore. Issues, of course, we know what they are, gay marriage, abortion, gender identity, transgenderism, what pronoun you want to go by, a polarized society that's divided politically as well as a lot of other ways. Um, you're supposed to accept other people regardless of their lifestyle. You can't question that. If you do, then you hate them. Uh, we live in a cancel culture. So many things Anger and hostility toward those of us who hold absolute truths, uh, lawsuits, firings, all of those things just because of what you believe are a part of our day. So there are a lot of challenges in our day, and it, it makes a lot of Christians want to just kind of get quiet, not speak out, and just live their faith privately and inwardly. Is that what Peter tells us to do? Well, we'll look at that as we look at the uh, at First Peter as we go along. But you know, it's it's always been that way for believers through the ages. Uh, what I'm telling you tonight is has been the norm ever since Christianity started. I mean, it began because religious leaders did not understand our Lord. They misunderstood him. They didn't believe him. Anger, hostility, and they killed him. So. Why should we expect anything different? Now, I know we went through a, 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 a period where, you know, leave it to Beaver, Father Knows Best, all of that is a, you know, idyllic society where people believe the Bible, people went to church. But that really has not been the norm for Christianity for all of these years. Believers through the ages have lost property, they've lost families, they've been persecuted, they've been killed. In more modern cultures, Christians are, if they're not killed, they're at least, they, some of them lose their jobs in other, in other foreign countries. Their assets are frozen at the bank. They can't, they can't get to their money. Uh, they freeze uh, their, their debit card. They can't use it if they're believers. Their utilities are turned off. They can't have access to water. This is happening in countries just because they're Christians. It's not happening in our country yet, uh, but it is in those countries. Uh, so it's really persecution has taken place of Christians for a long time. So First Peter, written to a group of believers who did not fit into the culture because of what they believed, and that's why I entitled it Culture Shock. Peter told them how to live for Christ, which is a good advice for us today. So having said that, let's start looking at the book and uh, see exactly how it applies to us. First of all, letter B on your outline, the author of the book, obviously, is Peter, uh, the disciple of Jesus, part of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, three of the closest disciple, disciples to Christ. No doubt he wrote it. Uh, you, have, you have some higher criticism out there that tries to question everything, but really there's no doubt that Peter, the disciple of the Jesus, is one who wrote this. 
He calls himself, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Calls himself just an apostle. But really, he was more than that. He was, he was the leader of the early church. Jesus ascended back to heaven. And Peter was one of the main ones they looked to to lead. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem after the resurrection. And then after that, he left Jerusalem, left the borders there, and went beyond Israel to take the gospel to other places and ended up in Rome. And that's where he was killed. We'll talk more about that later on. But, but that's, so his efforts led him really to faraway places. And Peter became very valued because of his relationship with Jesus through the years. So no doubt that Peter is the author. Go to letter C on your outline. Let's talk about the date of the book, just a moment. It was written from Rome, where he was. Now, he didn't call it Rome. He called it Babylon. Well, there wasn't a Babylon in that day because old ancient Babylon had ceased to exist. But Babylon was a code word that Peter used to describe Rome, which the new Babylon will be a part of the end times we saw in Revelation. But he uses the word Babylon to describe where he was. But he was in, he was in Rome. He was there under the reign of the emperor Nero. Nero was one of the ones who disliked Christians, hated Christianity, in fact, began to persecute Christians. And it was during Nero's reign that Peter died. Nero killed Peter probably around anywhere from 64 A.D. to 67 A.D. So that means this letter was written probably 62 or 63 B.C. or A.D. Uh, so that means about two years, two to three years after Peter wrote this letter, he was killed. Do you remember how he was killed? Tradition says, anyway, the Bible doesn't tell us. Tradition says that he was crucified upside down. That he was, uh, Nero said that he would crucify him just like the Lord he preached about. If he didn't stop preaching, he didn't stop preaching. And so we crucified him rather than the T cross, probably the X cross where you're like this uh, on the cross that was more common the time of Nero. And so most likely he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. Crucify me upside down. So on the X cross, they then put him upside down with his head near the ground and his feet up in the air. And he was killed for his faith. That was about 64 to 67. Now, what year was Jesus that he ascend? 30, 30 AD. So it's been about 32 or 33 years since Jesus has been gone when this letter was written. So that's pretty well the date uh, of the writing. Let's talk about the recipients for a moment. Who was he writing to? Well, he was writing to Christians who had scattered out to the northern part of Asia Minor, north of the Taurus Mountains. Today, that is western Turkey. So, believers left Jerusalem and went there. Now, there were some, you remember Pentecost 50 days after the resurrection? Remember Peter preached at Pentecost? And what happened at Pentecost? There were people from all over the Roman Empire gathered there. He preached. They all heard in their own language. They all received Jesus, saw that as a miracle, received Jesus as Savior, and went back to their homelands, believers. 
So they took Christianity with them as they went all across the Roman Empire. Well, the places that are listed in verse 1, look at it. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who were elected exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Those five places that are listed had representatives at Pentecost. So probably what happened was they were at Pentecost. They heard in their own language. They believed they were part of the 3,000 that were saved at Pentecost. They went back to northern Asia Minor and they started the Christian faith there. So most likely Christianity has been around that region Peter wrote to for about 30 years. So that's probably where Christianity started. So there were some believers in the, in the area of Jerusalem that scattered in the dispersion, the scattering of the Jews, fled up to that area. So now there are more believers up there. But the culture up there was really antagonistic toward the faith. Now, let's look at some of these in verse 1 where it says, the, the exiles of the dispersion in Pontius. Where is Pontius and what is Pontius? Well, Pontius was a little community. Today it's modern Turkey. It's on the Black Sea. Uh, and if you remember the Hittites of the Old Testament, they were from Pontius. So when the Bible talks about the Hittites and the Jebusites and all these other rites, the Hittites were the ones from this Pontius area. So a long history of interaction with Israel. The next city, Galatia. Of course, we know the book of Galatians, written to the churches of Galatia. Galatia, highlands of central uh, Anatolia, middle uh, of, of Turkey. They also were the Hittites of the Old Testament. And in the uh, mid-300s, Galatia was a large area, uh, a large province. So that's where, that was the Galatia believers there as well. But look at the next city, Cappadocia. Cappadocia today is still there. By the way, not only is it still there, it is a tourist attraction. It is like Branson. You can go to Cappadocia and Turkey and you can ride hot air balloons and they got all kind of things, all kind of entertainment. They're in central Turkey. They have an ultra marathon that they run there that people come from all over Turkey to run. Cappadocia, at also where the Hittites uh, lived, but today is a, uh, was, is a very large city and a, and a tourist area. It became the largest province in the entire Roman Empire by the mid-300s. Um, so it's very, it's always been very significant. Something else is kind of a side note that's interesting. Back in 1975, people in Cappadocia started dying. They couldn't figure out why. I mean, a lot of people started dying. They thought, what on earth is happening? This is in 1975, uh, residents there. And they came to find out that mesothelioma was a problem there. You know, you've heard of it today here with asbestos. Uh, exposure and supposedly the people who live there predisposed that certain chemicals got in their lungs and killed them uh, and so 50% of all the deaths in, 19, in 1975 in Cappadocia were due to mesothelioma breathing in like asbestos 
but that, anyway, part of them went to Cappadocia. Asia, of course, we know what that is. And Bithynia, Bithynia was a, another little town there in the highlands of Turkey, mountains and forests. Certain cities of Bithynia, one of them was Nicaea, from which we got the Nicene Creed. Another one was Chalcedon, from which there was one of the councils, famous church councils that took place there in Bithynia as well. So these are pretty well common cities that he's writing to believers in this area. If you add all of these together, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, makes up about 135,000 square miles. About the same size as New York, Pennsylvania, and Ohio together. So how do you get a letter to that broad of an area? I mean, it's not like five cities five miles apart. They're really spread out over Turkey, over Asia Minor. So probably what happened, couriers would deliver, like Pony Express would deliver the mail in those days. And most likely, this was the order of the carrier route. They'd go to Pontius first, then they'd go to Galatia, then they'd go to Cappadocia, and then, the, then uh, to the other parts of Asia, then finally Bithynia. And so they would take that, it was probably the courier route listed there. So Peter wrote this letter, and he designed it to be read in all of these towns. So that's what's called a circular letter. In other words, if Paul wrote a letter to Philippi, it was to the Philippians only. Paul wrote a letter to Corinth, it was to the Corinthians only. But some letters were not just to one church, they were into an entire region. Those were called circular letters. And so this was a circular letter meant to be read by all of these believers throughout all of Asia Minor. Now, there's a debate on who these people he's writing to are. Is it Jews or is it Gentiles? Some people say, well, they were Jews because... In this letter, he referenced Noah and Abraham and Sarah, Old Testament figures. Well, okay, but Gentiles may have known those characters as well. There are a lot of Jews there in that region. It was the third largest number of Jews at that time after Babylon and Egypt. By 115 AD, there were no Jews there that all left. So, could have been Jews, but most believers or most scholars believe he's writing to Gentiles, not to Jews. couple reasons for that. First reason we believe they're Gentiles, in chapter 1 verse 14, he called them, he said that they were ignorant in their past. The word that's used there probably referred to pagan worship. That wouldn't have been Jews. Second reason, in chapter 1, verse 18, the readers, he said, quote, have been ransomed from your feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, end quote. Their forefathers, if they were Jewish, would not have been described that way because they were described with Gentile terms. So, having said all that, probably they were Gentiles under Roman control in a Greco-Roman culture, persecution for their faith, ramped up under Nero, he harassed them, anti-Christian sentiment everywhere, and Nero, if you remember, 64 AD, blamed the Christians for the burning of Rome. Most likely, 
He set the fire is what some historians believe. Not all of them, but some historians believe. He set the fire to divert attention away from the fact that the empire was going to pot. It was, it was terrible. Time, the economy was bad. Things were happening bad. So he burns the city of Rome and blames it on the Christians so he can persecute the Christians. So Greg Forbes says... The frequent, frequent references to the state in the book of Peter makes it most likely that state oppression was not the issue here. So they were being persecuted, but probably by this point, not really just killed for their faith. They're just harassed for being Christians. That's where we are. We're not to the point of dying for our faith in America. But just to the point of harassment of if you're a Christian, uh, just kind of sneering and anger and things like that. So that was probably what was going on here as well. Now, some things about the letter, letter E on your outline. We'll get to the starting verse one in just a moment. Some things about the letter. Um, it really wasn't written by Peter. It was written by a secretary of Peter, most likely. Did they have those? Yeah, they were called an amanuensis, people who would write letters for you. They were more articulate than you. Uh, they did this for a living, and most likely a man by the name of Sil Silvanus was the one who wrote the letter. He was a Greek Christian who had traveled with Paul at one time, writing some of Paul's letters. So, most theologians believe that Silvanus was the one that wrote the letter. Paul was the one that told him what to write. You say, well, what makes you think that? His reference to Silvanus being with him is one. But also, as you read Peter, the Greek is really uh, high-tech. Peter was a fisherman. He was probably not one to write really smooth, eloquent Greek. 105 verses of smooth. In fact, some of the best Greek in the entire New Testament. Sophisticated vocabulary, words that you had to have a strong knowledge of the Greek language to use. And Peter it was, in fact, he was criticized one time in the book of Acts for being an unlearned, ignorant fisherman. He wouldn't have known the Greek language that well. So, most likely, it was someone else, Silvanus, who probably wrote it, and Peter told him what to say as he wrote. He uses uh, rhetorical questions a lot, and he uses words from hymns. You know, sometimes a preacher will quote a hymn or sing. I, they, I don't sing, but some preachers will sing up here, and they'll sing part of a hymn. Peter does that in the book. There are some hymns of the day that make their way into his writing that the people would have known, oh, that's a hymn. In fact, we get to one here in verse 3, uh, verse 2, in just a moment. So you see some of those hymns uh, in there as well. And Peter also has an affinity for the Trinity. Over and over, he will say, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In fact, he does it in verse 2 in just a moment. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Here's something I find interesting about the book as well. Peter was one of the ones that followed Jesus closely for three and a half years. You would expect, if he's writing a letter, 
He's going to tell you about some of those experiences. He didn't mention them. He mentioned his death, and he mentioned his resurrection, and that's it. Nothing from the life of Jesus other than that. You'd think he'd say, oh, that reminds me of a time. We were up at Caesarea Philippi one time, and, and let me reference this. But he never talks about the life of Jesus. That's kind of odd. Except his death and the resurrection. Well, let's look at the purpose. Why did he write this? To encourage non-Jewish Christians to endure the suffering and persecution they were experiencing. They were to give themselves entirely to God. Chapter 4, verse 19, he says. And the suffering you're going through, we can say that suffering or persecution as it is that we may go through, we look to him as the model because he endured suffering and entered into glory afterwards. So if he suffered first, who are you and I to get angry at the culture because it's, we have to suffer as well? So that's part of what Peter says. Uh, some key themes through here. Just listen to these as I mentioned some of the things you're going to hear over and over. Those who suffer as Christians will be proven faithful when Jesus returns. Believers of the new Israel, the new people of God, you're going to hear that. Believers should set their hope on their end-time inheritance. You'll hear about that. Christ died as our substitute. His death is the basis of our new life. You're going to hear about that. Christians should live righteously in their homes. He's going to talk about wives and husbands and kids. And if you don't, don't just live your faith out in public. Do it at home. He's going to talk about that. And then he's going to talk about the new life in Christ is the basis for a life of love and holiness. So these are some of the themes that you're going to hear through here as well. Now, talk about the key verse, and then we'll start actually looking at the verses itself. If there's one verse I say that summarizes the entire book, I would say it's chapter 4, verse 16. 4.16 says, quote, If anybody suffers for being a Christian, don't be ashamed. Glorify God. So tonight, if there are times you're kind of ashamed for what you believe because the culture is so adamant that what you believe is foolish, or if there are times you may be ashamed about your faith in our culture, don't be. Don't be ashamed. Glorify God in the midst of your persecution or people not understanding your faith or persecuting your faith. So that, I think that's the key verse is chapter 4, verse 16. Uh, one quick note, the outline letter I, you'll see we won't go over this much, but I will say this, we'll do it as we go along. The phrase, dear friends, whenever you see that phrase, that is marking a new major section of the letter. Whenever Paul says, Peter says, now dear friends, he's changing the subject and going to something else. So just hang that in your mind as we go through here whenever he says, dear friends. All right, let's look at verses 1 and 2. This is the introduction, and then we will wrap up after this and start verses 3 through 12 next week, which is a song of praise. Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Verse 2. 
according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, a couple of things, and then we'll look at the verses a little more closely, and we'll close. You remember I mentioned that sometimes he quotes a hymn, verse 2 is a hymn. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ for the sprinkling of his blood. Those were the words of an ancient hymn that the believers would have known up in Asia Minor. So it doesn't sound like any hymn we sing, but they would have known it. Immediately he starts quoting a hymn to them of a song. Now, did you notice also in verse 2 the Trinity? Did you notice that? God the Father, the Spirit, Jesus Christ. There is the Trinity. You're going to see that a lot through here. Peter has an affinity for the Trinity. Now, go back to verse 1. Let's talk a little bit about his name, Peter. If you remember from the New Testament, the Gospels, Peter was not his original name. What was it? Simon. Jews pronounce it Shimon. Texas at Simon. Why doesn't it say Simon, an apostle of Jesus Christ? Shimon or Simon was his Hebrew name. Cephas was his Aramaic name, which meant rock or stone, small rock. Jesus gave him this name to reference to what Peter would become later on. And his Greek name was Petros, meaning stone or rock. So, Simon is Hebrew, Cephas is Aramaic, Peter or Petros is Greek. Northern Asia Minor, the recipients of this letter, were Greek speakers. Certainly he's going to use the Greek name Peter. He's not going to call himself Cephas when it's Greek-speaking people or the Shimon when it's, he, when it's not Hebrew-speaking people. They're Greek speakers. So, it makes sense. That he uses his name Peter, as we know him by. Nobody else in the New Testament has the name Peter. Though Peter called Christians in this book stones. He calls them Petrases. We're going to see that later on in chapter 2. Peter's name is mentioned in the Gospels more than any other name except Jesus. Did you know that? Peter mentioned more than any other name in the Gospels except Jesus. Nobody speaks in the Gospels as often as Peter spoke. Jesus spoke more to Peter than any other individual in the Gospels. Here's some other things about Peter. Jesus rebuked Peter more than any other disciple. <laughs> That's Peter. He just runs at the mouth, doesn't he? Peter was the only disciple who dared to rebuke Jesus. Remember when Peter rebuked Jesus? Oh, that's pretty brave, isn't it? Peter confessed Jesus more boldly than any other disciple. Peter denied Jesus more forcefully than any other disciple. Jesus praised Peter more than any other disciple. But Jesus also addressed Peter as Satan. 
Satan using Peter. So Peter kind of has a, he's kind of up and down, isn't he? Yes, he's powerful and forceful and I'm with you, Lord, and turns right around and denies him. And Jesus praises him, but yet, yeah, sees Satan behind him. I want you to look at what Scripture teaches about Peter. Because it's the background of what we're going to see that he says. When Jesus woke up early in the morning to pray before the sun came up, Simon Peter led a hunt to find him because they didn't know where he was. Peter put his net out in the direction of Jesus to bring in a massive catch of fish. Peter stepped out of the boat during a raging storm and walked on the water with Jesus. Peter was the one who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. There's nowhere to go but to you. Peter's the one that saw Jesus transfigured in glory with Moses and Elijah. Peter was the one who asked Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? I'm tired of it. Seven times? No, 70 times seven. Peter is the one who asked Jesus after the encounter with the rich young rulers, what do we get? We gave up everything to follow you. What's, what's in it for us? I think Peter said what other people might have been thinking. Peter was the one who insisted Jesus would not wash his feet. Peter was the one who heard Jesus predict that he would deny him three times. And Peter replied, nope, even if I have to die with you, I'll never deny you once. Peter was the one who grabbed the sword and cut off the right ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest, when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, and Jesus reattached the ear. Peter was the one who denied Jesus three times, swearing that he did not know the man, even refusing to say his name. Peter was the one after the resurrection that ran with John the disciple to the tomb on that morning after hearing a report that the, from the women that Jesus' body wasn't there. And Peter was the one that received a personal visit from the resurrected Lord on Resurrection Sunday. He appeared specifically to Peter. And Peter was the one that received a public restoration as Jesus cooked breakfast for them after the resurrection and said, Peter, feed my sheep. And as his Lord ascended back, Peter was the one that was left there as the leader. So, whenever he begins the letter by saying, Peter, there's a lot in that name, isn't there? A lot of baggage, a lot of history, a lot that's happened with the Lord. But he doesn't really talk about it. He just talks about his death and resurrection. Peter, and then he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ doesn't add anything else to the title. I would have probably said, Peter, an apostle of Jesus who was with him very closely for three years. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ that Jesus thought a lot of. So listen to me. 
Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and you could go on and on and on, but he doesn't. Even Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and qualifies it. Peter says nothing other than just an apostle. What was an apostle? Means one sent on a message with a message on a mission. Oh, I'm just a I'm just another follower of Jesus sent with a message. Well, he was more than that. He was Peter. But that's how he identified himself. Didn't say preacher, didn't say teacher, didn't say evangelist. Just an apostle. Doesn't sound like the brash Peter anymore, does it? Maybe something's happened. Maybe we have a clue as we read the book. We'll see as we go along. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. Now, the New International Version calls them strangers, not exiles. Another translation calls them aliens. I almost entitled the study of this, uh, the, the, I almost entitled the study uh, Aliens. But that probably wouldn't communicate very well with all that's going on in our culture right now, would it? So I didn't, but um, we are aliens. What's an alien? Somebody who doesn't live, who doesn't belong in that culture. They're different from that culture. If they're an alien from outer space, they're from outer space. If you're living in another country and you're not from that country, you're different. You stand out. And so Paul, Peter used that phrase aliens to describe Christians in that culture. You're not like them. You stand out. You're different. And you know what, folks? Tonight, if, if you follow Jesus and, and this book, you're going to stand out for what you believe. You're going to be criticized. People are going to get angry at you, but you're going to be an alien in our culture. You're going to be different. And that's the word he uses here. You're elect aliens. You're, you're different. Now, some people believe Paul, Peter meant, I'll probably say this, I don't know how many times Paul is Peter. Some believe Peter was talking about being social aliens. In other words, they weren't landowners, they weren't citizens, they lived on the fringes, they were disenfranchised. I think he's talking about spiritual aliens. You're not accepted in your society because of your faith. They're spiritual aliens. And in this letter, he emphasized Christians are really citizens of another kingdom. We're citizens of heaven. We, we're just sojourners here. We're just aliens in American culture today. The word he uses for alien there, paraepidemios. It's really interesting. It's people who belong to another land but are temporarily residing somewhere else. And that's us. We don't belong here. We just temporarily reside here until we go to heaven. We really belong in heaven. But we're here. So, some have called this an epistle from the homeless to the homeless. Abraham was an alien as well. He calls them elect, chosen in a particular sense. 22 times the word elect is used in Scripture. Here's one of them. Elect exiles. Now, let's look at verse 2 and then we'll close. According to the foreknowledge of God. 
So Peter's saying, God knew you would trust Jesus as Savior. God knew you would end up in Asia Minor. God knew the culture was going to be against you. God knew all that, and he put you there. So let's apply that to us. God knew you would trust Jesus as Savior. God knew you would be living in America in 2023. God knew the culture toward Christianity in 2023 was not going to be great at times. But he put you here anyway. So you're here for a reason. They were there for a reason. We are here for a reason. So see God's hand in it. The word for foreknowledge, if the Greek language is used here, is the word prognosin. What does that sound like? Prognosis. Exactly right. Foreseeing what's coming. God saw it coming that he put them there. God saw our being here as so he placed us here. So it's the foreknowledge of God that sent them there, foreknowledge of God that placed us here now. Then next one, next, uh, next phrase. According to the foreknowledge, these are three prepositional phrases. According to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, that's an instrumental that's used there. So in other words, God uses the Holy Spirit to shape us into who we need to be. He placed us here by His foreknowledge, and He shapes us by the Holy Spirit to be who we're supposed to be and, what, and He wants us to be. And then He says... By the obedience to Jesus Christ. So, that's our task. We're placed here because God wants us here. Holy Spirit sanctifies us. And if we're obedient to Jesus, He uses us. So folks, whenever you take the pages of this book and you live by it and the culture is against it, be obedient to the book. God will bless you. Obedience to Jesus Christ. Now look at the last phrase. Two last phrases and we'll close. For the sprinkling with his blood. Now, to sprinkle, that's kind of an odd phrase here, isn't it? To sprinkle with the blood of Jesus was probably an allusion to the Old Testament. Here's something Peter does over and over. He refers back to the Old Testament a lot. It was the basis of our forgiveness was the, this Old Testament sprinkling. And if you remember the sprinkling of the blood in the Old Testament, if you remember three times in the Old Testament, blood was sprinkled on people. One was at the establishment of Sinai, or the covenant in Exodus 24. If you remember Moses standing there and says, Do you, are you going to go by these commandments? They said, we are, and he sprinkled them with blood, which meant this is a sign you're now under the covenant. You're going to go by these laws. Second time at the ordination of Aaron, Exodus 29. Third time was a purification ceremony for a cleansed leper in Leviticus 14. Three times blood was sprinkled on somebody. But whenever they sprinkle, it meant two things. You're forgiven, you're cleansed. Sprinkling was the cleansing. But not just cleansed, you're now under an oath of obedience. You must do what this covenant says. So I find it interesting that he begins this letter by saying, 
according to the foreknowledge of God, sanctification of the Spirit, obedience to Jesus Christ. But he didn't stop there. He added one phrase, for the sprinkling with his blood. So not only are you forgiven, folks, you have an obligation to obey him to the letter. And so do I. So the sprinkling with blood phrase, very interesting that Peter puts in there as he refers back to the Old Testament, cleansed, but they're now under responsibility. I must obey. They had to do it in Asia Minor. We have to do it here today. Then the last phrase. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, a lot of times we read those and we go, okay, he's just saying, see y'all, you know, or welcome or something like that. But there's more to that phrase than that. Grace was a Greek culture greeting. Grace to you. Peace was a Hebrew culture greeting. Shalom. Go to Israel, they still say, shalom. So, he includes both Gentiles and Jews in the final greeting. So, there could have been both in the congregation there. We don't know. Grace was a Greek culture greeting and peace was the Jewish culture greeting. Grace and peace. That's why Peter, I mean, Paul says it so much. Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. The reason he is, is including both Jews and Gentiles. So, first two verses, there's the introduction. Let me summarize it and we'll, we'll pray. Peter wanted the believers to know that their fundamental identity is not in culture. It's in Jesus. Christians are chosen by God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, and sprinkled under the blood of Jesus. So we're responsible. Responsible to obey. So at the beginning of this letter, to a hurting, persecuted, oppressed people, knowing who you are and why you're there, vitally important. And that's his word to us. So let it sink in. God has chosen you to be alive at this moment. In U.S. culture. Don't retreat. Don't compromise. Live for Christ. In the midst of it. We'll pick up with verse 3. Starting next Wednesday night. Father thank you tonight. For this wonderful letter that you've given to us. And the opportunity you've given to us as a church. To dive into it deeply. God, the powerful things you wrote through the mouth of this, of this awesome disciple of yours, I pray will resonate 2,000 years later with us as we read the pages of it. God, may the challenges that are there be our challenges. May the encouragements there be our encouragement. May the instruction that's there be our instruction. God, use us in our day to be a witness for Jesus in every corner we're placed. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. God bless you. Good to see you tonight. We'll see you Sunday.